Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the July 29th, 2019 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine. The world's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and intersex radio show, and proudly promoting our allies. I'm Abby Dees. And I'm Wenzel Jones. Tonight, Vash Bodhi reports from the Tribeca Film Festival on a film that resonates with one of the questions of our time. And he talks to the filmmakers behind the documentary Peer Kids on the Red Carpet at Outfest opening night. And we encore a Gatino report with the very funny Sandra Valls. But first, the honest tea. Okay, we have the most exciting story for you. It's about tax taxes. laws. Yay. But this is kind of cool. And, it is. And surprising. I actually researched this because I couldn't believe what I read. Last week, the U.S. House of Representatives voted unanimously. Mm-hmm. That's what Judy Chu says. It's unanimously the House. for the Pride Act, H.R. 3299, which would retroactively give same sex couples the federal tax benefits of marriage before the U.S. v. Windsor 2013 decision that allowed same-sex couples to file federal taxes as married couples. So if you were married here in California in 2008 during that first window we had, that goes way back. Yeah, we spent five years having this weird sort of, you know, we're single, we're not related according to federal law, but we're married in California law. So if it passes the Senate, which is a little bit... Harder, and apparently Elizabeth hurdle. Warren is introducing an, a similar bill. In and the has Senate. it worked? They, they, if they both pass, then they would have to mash them together and vote on it again. Or I'm never well. This clear. bill, yeah, I gotta say, I yeah. really never quite paid attention to no. Schoolhouse Rock to the extent that it got into appropriations and things yeah. like that. If it ever did, I believe that that is separate from this bill, which will then go to the Senate and they'll have their vote. But unanimous. I know. Unanimous. If only it weren't for that darn Senate, where I would say there's probably no hope at all. Well, if everybody in the House of Representatives voted mm-hmm. for this, I don't know. I'm going to bet money that it's going to pass because, yeah. I mean, it sort of falls into traditional conservative values. But since when has that actually ever been a consistent? That is true. You're right. Yeah, it's yeah. about taxes. So what this means is that if you were married before 2013 and you are you know, married to someone of the same gender, you can actually go back to the beginning of your marriage, not the usual three years, mm-hmm. if you got married in 2008, like my partner and I did, and amend your taxes and potentially get money back because now you can take advantage of the various federal tax benefits, which are numerous and I can't explain them all. So please note that we did start with a good news story this week. We did. However, (laughs) we're now leaping into the bad news. It was an activist in Russia. Her name is Yelena Grigorieva. Yelena Grigorieva. She was unfortunately killed for being an LGBTQI activist. Her name was put up on a website, which was inspired by the movie Saw, which I did not see. But I, don't see I just remember the the billboards were horrifying. It would be like half a human head sitting on it. They were just anyway. But that's what inspired this website, and it lists the names of gay activists, and activists for a certain of all kinds. yeah, and for a, a fee of two hundred rubles. They'll give you a name of a person. You can go hunt. It's like a game. Yeah, except you're not supposed to kill them, but you're supposed to go hunt them. you're not supposed to kill them? No, no. They specifically say anything but killing. Oh. I know. Wow, so I guess they have some scruples. I know. Okay, no, this is horrific. Well, and then for 1500 you can have your name taken off the list, so they can extort you for having put your information up there, and I don't know what the guarantee is that they'll keep it off the list. But the idea this website exists is horrifying. And apparently, Yelena Grigorieva saw her name on this list and sounded the alarm and put a post on Facebook saying, everybody, this is what's happening. She actually contacted a friend and Mm -hmm. said, will you take care of my cat if something Mm -hmm. happens to me? And three days after that, she was found murdered, strangled, and stabbed. And apparently she and the Russian LGBT rights group, the Russian LGBTQ network, had been complaining to authorities about this website for about a year and a half. They had been complaining to authorities. Authorities did nothing. The website got shut down. It took about a year to shut down, and there's there's no guarantee it won't be back. They had been complaining that the authorities weren't doing anything about this. And, of course, after her death... The police said that, well, she never mentioned she was in danger of being killed. Yes, they had many police reports, but it was, you know, domestic squabbles with her acquaintances, yeah. which sounds completely bs and blame yeah. the victim Yeah. 
Boy, there have been people picketing by her home in St. Petersburg. I found out they can do things called solo pickets where just one person goes up and protests and they're rotating because you don't need a permit to do that. Just one person. Just one person. So they've been kind of doing this one-at-a-time protest to celebrate her life. But one of her fellow activists said, Yelena was killed because she was not afraid to tell the truth about the subjects that are traditionally silent in Russia. Of course, in Chechnya, we've seen Russia is absolutely trying to destroy LGBTQ lives and rights. And it sounds like she was an absolute victim of that rhetoric. Yeah. Well, and speaking of Chechnya, I guess the website did a thing called Chechnya's Comeback yeah. to reference the the abuse and murder of, of gay and lesbian people. Like it was a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Okay, bringing it back okay. home. We are going to lighten the mood here. This is our weird story. This is our absurd story, <laughs> and it involves Mike Pence. Say no more, you say. Last weekend in Aspen, Colorado, Mike Pence hosted a big-ticket private fundraiser at the exclusive Caribou Club for $35,000 a couple. And what else goes on in the Caribou Club? Is it a gay bar, or is it just owned by gay people? It's I'm owned sorry. by a it's gay It's owned by a gay couple. Yes. So it's just an event hall then. It, yes, it I is. Totally but it's a very exclusive yeah. club. I mean, like, you know, Beyonce goes there and stuff right. like that. It's owned by these two gay men, Billy Stoltz and Richard Edwards. I know nothing about them. I couldn't find anything about them nope. except for the fact that they own this club. $35,000 a couple, supposed to go mostly to the RNC and a little bit to reelect Trump. They expected about 25 couples. I did the math. That would come up to about $875,000 for an evening. And and it was one of those events where you would not get the venue until you sent in your RSVP you because this was all very d- done on the down low. They said they didn't want protesters showing up, and it right. was, but tell your rich friends. I mean, it yeah. said this on the local yeah, yeah, invitation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah because they're worried about the police. They didn't want to inconvenience the police. Please quietly spread the word. So a couple of weird <laughs> things about this is that a gay couple owns this club mm. who have not been available for comment. Yeah. And the local head of the Republican group in Aspen said, what's that got to do with anything Mm -hmm. when this was brought to his attention? What it's got to do with anything, of course, is that Pence is so homophobic that he actually scares the other people in this White House. Right. We've gone into all the horrible stuff that Pence has done, but, you know. Repeatedly. Repeatedly. I hope we don't need to explain that. But as so often happens in stories... Their cover was blown by the most unlikely person, the chef at this place, who managed to get himself arrested for assault right before the event. Punching a woman in the face. Mm -hmm. And so he asked the judge, could I be released on bond so I can go make food for the vice president? And that's how the Aspen (laughs) Times found out about it. But there's more. Oh, tell me. There's more. Then the county sheriff said... Like when this story first broke about them mm-hmm. going to the Caribou Club, that he wanted to know the location of the event so that he knew where to send the bill for all the extra local security involved with the vice president's arrival and the motorcade and everything. And then after the event, Pence people skipped out on the bill. And it is not an insubstantial bill. 24000 And so Pitkin County Sheriff Joe DeSalvo said, you raise $700,000 in an hour, I guess They didn't have quite as many people Mm -hmm. as they expected. You should be able to pitch in to support the community that made you feel welcome. I don't have this kind of money. I guess they've been calling the vice president's office and being put on hold indefinitely. Just a reminder, the last time Pence was in Aspen for a fundraiser, the neighbor of the private home where it was had a huge banner up that said, Make America Gay Again. So keep it up, folks. You know? My partner was actually there in Aspen oh, as and was talking to cops and stuff as oh. it was happening. She wasn't at any of the events, yeah. but she was sort of stalking them. Huh. And yeah, it's on the ground. She was talking to people. It lined up exactly with this whole story. Yeah. And I'd, I'd like to say I'm surprised you didn't pay their bill, but that's sort of the, the Trump business model. Yeah. Is just stiffing the, stiffing the people you can. And again, how does this line up with being a good Christian? I, I don't know how any of it lines up. Yeah. And I wonder how it's going to be afterwards with this Caribou Club and the membership, because they have queer members. Oh, and the police did mention that when Hillary Clinton had a fundraiser there, they they paid paid for security. That is all. Mm -hmm. Okay, moving on. Okay, now to something. To our own state. We can't get enough of this story for some reason. 
straight pride, now there's going to be one in Modesto, California. That is, if you need to know, about 100 miles inland from San Jose. Mm -hmm. It's a very agricultural area. They are famous for being the home of the Gallo Winery. And I guess it's where the movie American Graffiti. American Graffiti was set there, yes. Hmm, a little factoid. Anyway, August 24th is going to be, oh no, well no, it's not going to be, because well, it yeah. looks like they're not getting a permit. No, they're not. it's slated to be the Straight Pride Parade organized by the National Straight Pride Coalition. And the event will, and I'm quoting here, celebrate heterosexuality, masculinity, femininity, babies born and unborn, Western civilization, our wonderful country, and Christianity. Come for the pleated chinos and hot dogs and stay for the white supremacy. <laughs> so I went to the website of the National Straight Pride Coalition. Mm-hmm. And I, I hope people are ripping off those posters so they, could, they can sell them on eBay. Oh, yeah. I want one. Do you really? Oh, yeah. Okay, y'all so know cute. what to get. Wenzel, just don't put money in their pockets, please. No. I went to their website and I learned a few things. They have a few mottos. One of them is West is Best. Mm-hmm. West is best. And they use the phrase normal, natural, healthy, and sane for a lot of things like heterosexuality, apparently. Right. Normal, natural, healthy, and sane. The website is fun. You can see it yourself. NationalStraightPrideCoalition.org, where you will learn that whiteness is inherently superior. I mean, they're, they're yeah. blatant about this. No, no, no bones about it. Nationalism is great, and punctuation is really whatever you feel like it is at any given time. It is a declaration of war. And, and what they stand against is the inherent malevolence and evil of the homosexuality side movement. Just discuss. <laughs> what I'm struck by is how all of these things, nationalism, you know, white pride, everything else mm-hmm. gets boiled down to straight pride. So yeah. if I were straight, mm-hmm. I would be really pissed off. Yeah. Because I don't think those things are synonymous. Because they're basically a white nationalist organization sort of masquerading as just some straight celebration thing. The local city council is not inclined to give them a permit and doesn't really think they have to explain it too much. It's obviously hate speech yeah. that they're promoting, so they're like, no, nah, not yeah. going to happen. You know, thumbs up, Modesto. So now, Dateline. Meanwhile, back in Boston. Yep. <laughs> Apparently, their Pride Parade had what they called prospective corporate sponsors, and they would put the logo up on the website and give you the idea that these people were contributing and behind the program until these corporations found out and Lyft has to be taken off of that regrettable website. Netflix sent mm-hmm. a letter saying, our legal department is here, it's queer, and it's telling you to stand clear. And TripAdvisor, the, the travel website, bent over backwards to craft a letter. Okay. So their cease and desist letter is embedded with queer anthems. And let me see if I can do this. <clears throat> I'm, I'm reading. TripAdvisor's trademarks are protected in many countries around the world and over the rainbow, including in the United States. If I could turn back time, I would tell you not to use our name in the first place. But now that you have, TripAdvisor demands that you remove all uses of our name, mark, and logo from your website and anywhere else you might use it within 24 hours and not use them again. You make me feel mighty real disappointment that you thought this might be an acceptable way to do business. I had no idea I was going to get a private concert. Thank you so much. <laughs> okay, one last little note. And um, it's just somebody doing the right thing. We want to give them a shout out. And you know what? Queer people do know how to respond to hate in the yes. best, most glittery way. Yes. Speaking of people doing the right thing, Elizabeth Warren, Julian Castro, Bill de Blasio, all Democratic candidates mm-hmm. for president, have on their websites actually added a section to their bios saying what their PGPs are, their personal gender pronouns, such as, like Elizabeth Warren says, he, her, and ella, mm-hmm. the Spanish word for she and mm-hmm. her, because that is the right thing to do. Well, it is. I mean, we all know what she uses for her personal pronouns. We didn't need to be told, but it's good for... Signaling. Yeah, yeah, for people who are non-binary to know that, yes, everybody, this is just information you should convey. Yeah, and so just a good thing to do if you are, you know, cleaning out your Facebook profile, add your personal pronouns. It sends a message that you are absolutely with the program. So we began and ended on a reasonably happy note. In this country right now. And that's the honest tea. American dancer and choreographer Jack Cole coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Born in 1911 in New Brunswick, New Jersey, Jack Cole would be known as the father of modern jazz dance. During the 1930s, his troupe, the Jack Cole Dancers, headlined at leading nightclubs in New York and Los Angeles. 
He went on to become a choreographer for Broadway, but gained his greatest fame from his work in nearly 30 films. He was gay but closeted his entire career. Cole had the uncanny ability to coach stellar performances from dance novices. Years after Jane Russell's performance in the 1953 film Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, she deemed Cole a genius and said he was largely responsible for the success of the film since neither she nor co-star Marilyn Monroe could dance a step at the start. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Melinda Skinner. This is Isabel Davis, producer of the documentary XY Chelsea. You are listening to IMRU Radio on KPFK. 98.7 FM Santa Barbara, 93.7 FM San Diego, 90.7 FM Los Angeles, 99.5 FM Ridgecrest and China Lake. And when you're not near off radio, you can stream us live at kpfk.org or on podcast. Welcome back. I'm Abby Dees. And I'm Wenzel Jones. On the Outfest red carpet, our very own Vaj Bodhi speaks with the filmmakers responsible for the Outfest centerpiece documentary, Peer Kids. This is Vaj Bodhi with another episode of TTV, Talk to Vaj. Today I am in Los Angeles on the red carpet for the opening night of Outfest 2019. This year there are over 240 films, many of which are being seen by audiences for the very first time. Films like Peer Kids by Elegance Bratton, here I am talking to Elegance, director of Peer Kids, which is one of the featured films here at Outfest. It's amazing because it deals with something that is so on the tip of everyone's tongue these days, which is homeless youth, voguing, and just being generally fabulous. Hi, Elegance. Hi, my name is Elegance Bratton. I'm the writer, director, producer of Peer Kids, a documentary about three queer, black, trans youth who have to navigate homelessness and use Christopher Street as a base in order to find stable housing. And I followed them for five years to tell the story. It's really such an amazing film. In your own words, what is Peer Kids really about? Peer Kids is about the power of community and the struggle for the individual, ultimately. Like, how do these three queer characters, how are they able to overcome homelessness? And the answer to that is by building a community. So the film is like a call and response, immersive, verite experience that shows in real time how these youth uh, form new family with one another to overcome the rejection of their blood families. One of the things that was really super duper explicit is that whole concept of family. Uh, from the acceptance of everyone, from people who weren't paying rent when they were supposed to, people who were just not behaving properly in the clubs as they were supposed to. What do you think causes all of that family feeling? Queer people, we are kind of caught between a rock and a hard place in a puritanical Christian culture that labels sodomy as some sort of sin. And as a result, families who really just want to fit in and accomplish the American dream and sometimes they believe the easiest way to do that is to conform and when you can't conform you have to leave and then the beautiful thing is you discover a community of people like you and they take you in and all of a sudden now the thing that you've been rejected for becomes the thing that makes you strongest. And that's individuality and I, I love that. One of the things that one of your characters Crystal Abasha goes through is this whole trying to accept this normality of civilization. Why are we so drawn to that? Like, why did you want to show that? I'm the type of person where I think a part of my mission as an artist is to show that queer people are just people. We brush our teeth, we put milk on our cereal, we, you know, we chew our food before we swallow it. And I believe that that's important to do to kind of not normalize, but I, I guess for lack of a better term, to humanize, because we just get kind of twisted by the media sometimes. They want to portray us as these kind of like otherworldly, almost inhuman sites of entertainment and fancy, but not necessarily people that we respect and take seriously. And I think that by seeing people do kind of regular, degular, everyday things, who can't identify with that? So. I wasn't necessarily interested in normalizing anyone's experience, but I was definitely interested in making sure that we understand that we're all human beings and we all kind of have to do the same things to survive. We just have to do them differently based off of our identities. How did you come to make this film? I spent 10 years of my life homeless because my mother kicked me out for being gay. I joined the military 
And then after the military, I went to college at Columbia. And that was about maybe five, six years of my life before I actually had my first apartment with my name on it. And when I got to Columbia, I realized I didn't know what home was. I'd spent most of my adult life without any real concept of home. And I kept asking myself, where is home? What is home? Why is home? And I ended up on Christopher Street, the place I went to when I was first kicked out. And there, for the first time, I realized that this place where so many people are black or brown and queer and outside and together becoming themselves, that this was home. That home is where people understand you. And that's why I made the film. I wanted to memorialize that truth that I discovered. And I also wanted to combat the ridiculously unjust policing that is being used to push gentrification and that endangers this safe space all over the world in cities for queer people of color. So it's both my personal experience and my kind of political desire to make sure that we still have this way of bonding, that peer kids still exist. Describe the extension of the homeless community around Christopher Street and how it extends into the ballroom. Okay, in 1969, on Christopher Street at the Stonewall Bar, two trans women of color, Sylvia Rivera and Marsha P. Johnson, were amongst the community that initiated the police rebellion that we call Stonewall. Marsha was Sylvia's gay mother, and together they formed a house called Star. Street transvestite action revolutionaries, and that was the first house. And since then, we have use Christopher Street as a place to, like these, these families that are formed on Christopher Street are very much the houses, the extravaganzas, the Labejas, the Revlons, the Mizrahis, the Saint Laurents, they're all there. They all have come of age there. So the way that Christopher Street and the pier connects to the ballroom scene is that it is the ballroom scene. What do you hope people take away from seeing Pier Kids? My film is all about collapsing the distance between the audience and the film. It's not an objective documentary, it's super personal. I want the audience to feel like they're a peer kid. And I, when they're done feeling that way for 84 minutes, I want them to go out and make the world better for peer kids. And then for another part of my audience, I want them to see themselves and be proud of themselves and know that no matter how bad things get, that they have within them this incredible power to persevere and to thrive. And that if I can kind of come from where they've come from and I've been homeless on a pier and I get to end up where I'm at and this film exists, they can do it too. What can people do to help the homeless LGBTQI population? There's also lots of nonprofits like Ali Forney Center and um, the LGBT Center in Los Angeles that you can donate to. There's also the possibility of going where these kids are, going to these places that help homeless queer youth and being a volunteer and a mentor. If you have a life that is good and you're queer, there you have a plan, you have a map to show someone who does not know how to get there. Make yourself available to pass that knowledge and do so in a generous and committed lifelong way. Do you have an organization you are particularly connected to? Well, I'm from New York City, so The Door is one of my favorite organizations. The Ali Forney Center, the LGBT Center, Harlem Pride, Harlem United. They're all great. Where can people find out more information about Peer Kids so they can see it in case they miss it here at Outfest? Well, this is, the, this is our world premiere. We're just beginning our festival run. So it will be in a city near you soon. Keep paying attention to your LGBT festivals and your Oscar qualifying film festivals. We will be there soon. Um, if you want to find out more about those screenings, you can go to our website, www.peerkidsthelife.com, and also our Facebook, Peer Kids, Instagram, Peer Kids, Twitter, Peer Kids, and you can follow me at Elegance Bratton on Instagram and at Elegance21, Langston Cruz on Twitter. How fortuitous to meet you, Elegance, because I was really bummed that I get a chance to talk to you during the festival. Well, I'm happy. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Let I really me... appreciate it. This is Vosh Bodhi, and you have been listening to Elegance Bratton talk about his film, Peer Kids, a documentary about homeless LGBTQI youth finding home and happiness. Remember, if you have a story to tell, TTV. Talk to Vosh. Chelsea Manning is a controversial citizen. Her decision to do what she thought was right when she believed no one else would keeps her a relevant figure for our time. The Traveling Bashvoti speaks with Tim Travers Hawkins and Isabel Davis, the director and producer of the intimate documentary XY Chelsea, which premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival. This is Vosh Bodhi with another episode of TTV, Talk to Vosh. Today I'm in New York City with two of the amazing people behind the extraordinary film XY Chelsea. 
a moving documentary about the infamous Chelsea Manning. Hi, my name is Tim Travers Hawkins and I'm the director of XY Chelsea. Hi, my name is Isabel Davis and I'm producer of XY Chelsea. What is XY Chelsea about? XY Chelsea is a film about Chelsea Manning. She is a transgender whistleblower who in 2010 disclosed some very important documents, including what has become known as the collateral murder video, a video that showed the killing of innocent civilians in the Iraq war and which became a lightning rod, I think, for uh, resistance to the war and discussion about America's wider foreign policy. When did you decide to take on this project? The collateral murder video, that was for me a defining political moment of my generation. Um, So I I was very aware of Chelsea Manning from the the trial and I had been involved in projects with incarcerated child undocumented migrants and situations where we had no direct access to our subjects and I was really fascinated with how you could use the creative ingenuity of the documentary medium to overcome these barriers to our perception and to our ability to relate and empathize with certain characters. So I was in a line of making these projects with the children and then I also started to work on a series of projects about political prisoners in a similar situation of invisibility or unfilmability if you like and Chelsea was one of those so I wrote to her not saying I want to do a full I just actually said you know this whole project is about working within the parameters of of access that we have and at that moment it was just writing and so she was sending me out diaries and the idea was to use a diary that she was writing in prison to talk about her experience of prison and and it was very very closely linked to what she was going through transitioning um, as a woman in an all-male prison but also relating back to the disclosures and what she'd done before and then whilst I was writing to her I started working with a group who were surrounding her her support team her lawyers Nancy and Vince who are in the film Chase Strangio Christina Di Pasquale who was helping her to communicate and this kind of became kind of a family almost through which trust built. When did you initially contact Chelsea? Actually I can remember a very specific moment that I wanted to reach out. It was a moment that I heard that she had been thrown into solitary confinement for having books that weren't permitted by the prison. This really moved me and through that reaching out, you know, the the project grew into a doc that I pitched to a lot of people and all credit to them because I was essentially pitching a documentary with an invisible protagonist with a creative vision of how I thought we could get past those obstructions but nonetheless it's it's a brave move to back a project like that and I think the great thing is even with what the film became because of the commutation all of those people were already on board with the idea of a much more if you like difficult and less digestible film from the start. If Chelsea is the protagonist in XY Chelsea, who is the antagonist? I think one of the aspects about Chelsea's actions are how they often appear to be on different fronts. But I think what's something interesting about our time is how we're starting to become aware of how all of these fights are interconnected. I think Chelsea is actually a sort of truly intersectional person and her story is really intersectional because of the way that it traces lines between these different battles. So I don't know if you can really call out one antagonist but I would say they are linked by certain power structures that she is fighting against. The US government is clearly one of the antagonists because they repeatedly go after her. The US military is one of the antagonists because of the way they failed to look after her, they failed to care for her, they failed to recognize her as a woman. So I think there are myriad antagonists but I think they're connected by the sense that they are the establishment. She makes powerful people angry, upset, and scares them. And I think that's great. Chelsea is a very polarizing figure. How do you see her? I have continually been challenged and my opinions of her have changed since the very beginning. I think she continues to kind of prove she's going to stand by what she believes in. And I think people, regardless of if you agree with what she did originally, you can't deny that she's a really brave woman at a time like this. How do you think XY Chelsea will change people's perceptions of her? I think people are familiar with a lot of elements of this story. But what I wanted to do is recenter and reframe the, the, the point of view of the story around her experience of what happened. And so really what I hope people get from it is the human connection to the person who is at the center of it all. What were some of the challenges of making this film? 
straight off the bat, the lack of access in, initially was hugely challenging. Snail mail really is slow and it's really, really slow when it's filtered through military censorship and the whole system that is sort of protecting the communication system at Leavenworth Prison. The scale of the story is a challenge in itself because I really wanted to frame this as a personal story, as a kind of coming of age story really, and as centered on Chelsea's experiences. But of course, there are so many things that spiral off this story. But actually, one of the things that I realized, particularly with the act of disclosing the documents, that there's actually a simplicity to that act that sometimes gets lost in all the noise. And I kind of, in some ways, wanted to strip back some of the really inside baseball geeky things that people got obsessed with around the time of the disclosures and just show a kind of simple act of somebody who says, this isn't right and I want to do something about it. For those people who have been following the whole Manning story, why should they see this documentary? I think the story, as it's been told so far, mediated through many different fragmented events, does not get you close to who she really is. This is a portrait film, so what I hope people get is a sense of who she really is, of getting to know her, of getting to know somebody who is a really important figure of our times. And that doesn't necessarily mean you come out thinking you know everything, but I think that's a different emotion of proximity that I hope people will feel once they walk out of the theatre. What moment are you most excited for people to see in this film? I mean, I have loads of moments in the film, but I think seeing her the first day she comes out and she's there, she's kind of a raw, emotional person. And I think, you know, seeing her sitting on the bed in her pyjamas with countryside around her and nothing else is like incredibly emotive. And I think it also reminds you that she isn't just a political figure, she is a person. What legacy do you think Chelsea will leave behind? I think a legacy of being somebody willing to put their head above the parapet. And I hope she will inspire people to to do similar things. I think in many ways it was a very intuitive act. And I think we need people who act intuitively on their morals and what they think is right. I think she'll be remembered for that. Also for the way that she... Ins- actually in many different ways embodies our time. Many of the sort of zeitgeist topics seem to flow through her and her experience. So I think she's truly of our time. And I think at the same time, what's so universal is this idea of acting for what you believe in, even though the cost for you might be so high. Would you have done what Chelsea did? No. Well, I mean, we talk about this a lot. I know I answer that really easily. I would like to think I would, and I just don't think I'd be brave enough. I think it's terrifying and I think that we're lucky that other people are doing it, which is another reason that I wanted to work on this film because I think in a tiny way you get to tell a story that needs to be told, but it's not brave. And so you get to, these other people are doing those things and yeah, I, I don't think I would. We might all like to think that we would, but my question then would be, well, why haven't you done it yet? Because I think we're all in our all of our different ways um, exposed to at different times. Power systems that we can clearly see are not working for the good of everyone, but most of us will not act against them. So um, it's easy to sort of, from a safe distance, say, of course I I would have done the same thing, I'm a principal person, but have you done that yet? What impact are you hoping this film will have on civilization? I mean, I hope it makes people think more critically about the world. I think it's easy to make a film that goes with people's common sense reactions and judgments. And I think it's harder to make a film that kind of opens people up to the possibility that what they were thinking wasn't correct. Are you done with the project? Yes. I mean, you've seen the latest. So it felt really important that we included what's happened in it. But I think, you know, the film is ready to go out. And I think, especially as for what Chelsea's going through at the moment, I think it personally it couldn't come at a better time and sort of reminding people what she has done and what she's continuing to do, which is pretty remarkable, especially in today's world. If you could summarize this film in a hashtag, what would it be? Hashtag go see XY Chelsea the movie, it's awesome. That's a real good answer. XY Chelsea releases June 7th on Showtime. To find out more information about the film, visit xychelsea.com. To find out more information about Chelsea Manning, visit hugsforchelsea.bandcamp.com. Thank you, Tim and Isabel, for making this film. I wish you every possible success. It was such a journey. Thank you. This is Vash Bodhi, and I've been speaking with Tim Travers Hawkins and Isabel Davis, director and producer of XY Chelsea. Thank you to the Tribeca Film Festival for making this interview possible and to the Roxy Hotel for making it fabulous. Remember, if you have a story to tell, TTV. Talk to Vash.
When we come back, Dan Guerrero speaks with the charming and hilarious Sandra Valls. We'll be right back. Guerrero. Guerrero. American stand-up comedian Moms Mabley, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Loretta Mary Aiken was born in Brevard, North Carolina on March 19, 1894. Her early years were filled with disasters. In her family, she was one of 16 children. At age 11, her father died when a fire engine exploded, and her mother was run over by a truck while coming home from church on Christmas Day. So at age 14, Loretta Mary ran away to Cleveland, Ohio, and joined a traveling vaudeville show. She took the stage name Jackie Mabley from an early boyfriend and said he had taken so much from her, taking his name was the least thing she could do. Mabley later adopted the name Moms, since many other comedians on the Chitlin circuit in the 1950s and 60s considered her a mom. More on the next episode. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Robin Bentley. Hello, I'm Don Bacardi, and you are listening to RMRU Radio Magazine. Welcome back. I'm Abby Dees. I'm Wenzel Jones, and you're listening to IMRU Radio. Dan Guerrero talks to some of the most amazing and interesting people. In this episode of the Gaytina Report, Dan talks to musician and comedian Sandra Valls. Bienvenidos. Welcome to the Gaytino Report. Voices from the Latino LGBTQ community. I'm Dan Guerrero, or if you can roll your R's, Guerrero. Tonight's guest, a pistol. Sandra Valls is a stand-up comic you may have caught on Showtime's The Latin Divas of Comedy, Nickelodeon's Nick Mom Night Out, or One Night Stand Up on Logo, or really at any top comedy club anywhere in the country. An actor, singer, and writer that plays a mean piano. Sandra is also a self-proclaimed badass. I suspect that may be her proudest accomplishment. I'm a little scared, but hello, Sandra. Dan, give, I can't roll my R's. Really? But I'm good with my tongue anyway. So oh, my God. Give, can we be blue in this program? Can we... How blue do you want to get? I don't know. Why am I thinking of that famous Bette Davis quote from All About Eve? Fasten your seatbelts. It's it's going to be be a bumpy bumpy night. Yeah. (laughs) Bumpy night or bumpy ride? Whatever you want. Whatever bumps. But not too blue. (laughs) Not too blue, yes. Let me ask you, does being a badass take a lot of work or does it come like really naturally to you? That's just who I am. Anyone who's an activist, anyone who stands up for their rights, anyone who's like, no, you're not going to suppress me or make me shrink. I think they're a badass. You know what? It's the same like diva. Diva's not a bad thing. It Mm-mm. just means you want things done well and professionally. And if that makes you a diva, then let's all salute divas. I salute the divas. The badass divas. <laughs> you have a great comedy career going and for a good many years now, but you came to it by accident, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I was a musician. I still am. And I'm you know, a singer. I was in a band. This was in Boston years ago. And I was seeing somebody, and all her tribe of people were like, you're just so funny. And, of course, I'm funny. I'm the class clown, whatever. But I'm like, no, I'm a lead singer. I'm an actor. No, you're so funny. You should be a comic. And I'm like, "Mm, whatever. So she signs me up for comedy classes at a local college, like adult comedy classes. And in the process, we were having issues. And so we were going to couples therapy, of course, because we're lesbians. (laughs) In the middle of it all, she's like, I'm done. This is not working. Then she goes, well, what about the comedy class? Are you still going? I said, I don't want to go. Who wants to laugh? I was just dumped. And so then my best friend Chris was like, girl, you should go to make friends. She took all your friends. (laughs) (gasps) Lesbians choose sides. I didn't do anything. Yeah, all her friends chose her. And then I ended up with like only two people. I'm like, gee, I went to make friends. And you did. And I made a lot of friends and I made a career out of it. You started the class because everyone said, you were so funny, you were so funny. Were you a funny kid growing up in Laredo, Texas? I mean, you got to be something in Laredo, Texas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was. I was funny. I really loved making my parents laugh. My dad's a great storyteller, and he would make other people laugh. And I was just silly. 
And I always felt different. It's so cliche for a lesbian, gay child to be like, I felt different. But I did feel different. And so my icebreaker or my way of fitting in was to make people laugh. I love to laugh. And so I made other people laugh. I was silly. I talked way too much. I was most humorous in high school. And I was always voted funny, funny, funny. But I never thought of it as a career. Mm -hmm. I thought, I'll just be a comedic actor. Do you find yourself limited to LGBTQ nights at comedy clubs or Latino night at comedy clubs? Do you find yourself limited to that genre? Well, I don't limit myself. They limit you. People limit you. Promoters limit you. They like boxes. They really love, like, Latino night, like you said, or LGBTQ night or women's night or something like that. I get in where I fit in. So for me, you know... I don't feel limited. Funny is funny. The audiences that laugh the loudest at different kind of jokes are straight people. And I, for me, I love LGBTQ rooms because I don't have to explain the joke. Sure. I can just sit and talk about our idiosyncrasies and or Latinos. I could Spanglish as much as I want. When I have straight audiences who aren't Latino, <laughs> it's a different take on the joke because we mm -hmm. have to explain it. Or they find it, like, for example, I have this one joke that I say... For the Mexican, a sheet is like the cloak of invisibility. Like, you know, we put sheets on things. We don't have storage units. We have, like, sabanas. Like, we, we just cover it up with a sheet, and it doesn't exist. Well, for Latinos, we laugh in a different, familiar way. But for non-Latinos, they crack up completely differently. So I don't limit myself. However, if your niche is the LGBTQ community or women or Latinos, yeah, you go with that. Is sure. that who's responding to you? Yeah, of course. And little by little, you become universal. And the laughs are different. In my solo show, Gay Tino, it's very different if I have a heavily Latino audience mm -hmm. or heavily gay. Or when I did it at the Kirk Douglas, mostly older white folk, mm -hmm. the laughs are different. It doesn't mean you change your act or change the things, but it is a different energy. It's a different energy. The energy is different. When I'm among my LGBTQ people... It is a validation of who we are. It is a pride thing like, now let's get out there and kick some ass and still stand proud in who we are. So that is how I basically end my show. And, or they feel like, yay, somebody gets me, which is awesome. When I do straight crowds, it's an educational thing. Like, here's how gay people are. Here's how I am. Or here's what I feel gay and straight have funny about them. And so they leave a little bit changed, hopefully, like, oh, I never knew that about the LGBT community. So it's kind of the healing profession that I'm in. I believe that comedians are healers. Laughter heals. I think it's a release. I think it's so important to laugh and laugh at ourselves and with ourselves. If I can add a little bit of levity to your day and also have a message while you're laughing, insert a message of encouragement, of enlightenment, of empowerment, then I did my job. I think that's a beautiful thing. And we don't always start out that way. We start out as comics. I just want to be funny, whatever. And, and I'll just say things. And, and you find your voice. And as we get older, as you and I both know, we mature. Crap starts happening to us in our life. And then as a comic, you are a social commentator. And so you start to observe what makes me happy, what makes me feel good. I no longer want to feel dramatic and like crappy you know I want to feel good and and grow and so a lot of things have happened in the world <laughs> and in our own lives that I feel a responsibility with that microphone I feel a responsibility to empower people and to make them feel good and to heal their spirit when you laugh and when you can look at your life sort of outside of yourself and try to make it better or try to not get so caught up in your darkness, then I did some spiritual healing. This is Dan Guerrero with the Gay Tino Report, and I'm talking to funny lady Sandra Valls. When somebody asks me, what's your comedy about? I say my life, and they're like, is it mostly gay? Well, I'm a Mexican gay person, so <laughs> I guess. I don't know. I mean, it's things that I find funny, including my girlfriend or my ex-relationship where we had kids, so I talked a lot about kids. I find them really crazy. So I talked about that. Universal theme. Well, whatever you're living, if you're commenting on your own life, that's what it is. And so I just feel, not everyone feels this, I feel I have a responsibility in that microphone, especially as I get older, to at least leave them a little happier than they were before. And if I made you laugh, I did my job.
And I feel as a Latino, we also have a responsibility to get our stories out there, to empower. That is a responsibility. Yes. Again, I don't think we have enough positive and inclusive representation in our LGBTQ community or Latino or women, <laughs> you know, so I come out like three times or ageism even. I'm 52. Oh. And people are like, why do you go around saying you're Because it's empowering. People feel that people in their 50s have to look or act a certain way. Look at me. I don't think I look whatever 50 is or act or feel. Well, I feel. And last night I stayed out too late. So, yeah. I can't party anymore like I used to. But it's important to say we each can create our own life. We can create whatever we want out of ourselves. And you can't tell me who I am. And it's been a battle, and you know this, to be a strong, powerful gay person, Latina, woman. It's a challenge, unfortunately. You know, when I first moved to L.A. and I was talking about being Mexican, somebody actually said, don't tell people that you're Mexican, because I'm very pale. Mm -hmm. No, no, don't say that, because you know. I was like, well, I know, what do you mean I know? And don't say you're gay. This was in 2001. Yeah. So that made me want to say it more. <laughs> that Badass. I'm Mexican and gay. Also, you're a priestess. Tell me about that. I'm an Ifa priestess. It's a nature-based African religion. The only thing you can compare it to is a Native American religion, but it's vastly different. It deals with energies in the world, which some people call deities. So, for example, Yemaya, Oshun, Shango. And these are all parts of ourselves, but these are all energies in the world. The Oshun is the energy of love and unconditional love and abundance and joy. And Yemaya is the mother and the rebirth energy. And she's found in the ocean. And Oshun's found in a river and that kind of thing. So it's very intricate to get into. It's Orisha worship, Orisha which means the energies of the world. Uh, so anyway, I went through a uh, transformation, a spiritual cleansing, a year of white where I couldn't touch or hug anyone and couldn't wear any other colors and anything. But it was life-changing because I'm very intuitive. I'm sort of psychic. And I have now embraced that I'm a healer. We all are. But I didn't want to embrace that. I got a message when I was praying one day, and it said, take your place at the table. Toma tu lugar. What is that? What do you mean? No, it's a lot of responsibility. But a spiritual warrior is not for the weak and faint of heart. And it's a calling that, oh, it's annoying. <laughs> it's really hard. But I believe that we're all here on earth for a reason and a mission. And when you step into that, and I just happen to be a comedian. I mean, you could be a spiritual warrior and be a mother. And I believe they all are. <laughs> and they should be. Mm -hmm. Or a bus driver or whatever. But how I'm doing it. How you're healing the world, how I am, is with my comedy, with my message. And so my comedy changed a little, actually a lot. I still think funny is funny. I still, I can still bitch about the damn mockingbird that won't shut up because I can't sleep all night or all morning. I could still be that. I'm a human. But there is a, everything's going to be okay because I say it so. You create your own reality. You create your own life. And you can choose to look at the crap in life or look at the miracles in life. And every day is that choice. You know this. You wake up some days like, oh, there's nothing I could choose that's, ugh. And then you go, okay, I'm grateful for. The other day I ate too much and I felt like crap. But I went, you know what? Thank you so much that I have enough food that I ate too much, actually. There was a time in my life where I didn't eat enough because I was struggling, you know, that I can walk that I have a bed, that I have water, just little things like that, that we take for granted. But when you count your blessings, and I'm not saying that I am always have the best attitude, because I really don't, but I struggle and I really challenge myself to see the good in people. I love this quote that says, don't treat people as bad as they are, treat them as good as you are. And this other quote says, you want to be a badass? Be kind to everyone, dot, dot, dot everyone. That was, <laughs> I was like, oh. So often we want to be encompassed by darkness and this one and oh. Mm -mm. It sounds corny when they say choose to be happy, but it's really true and choose to be grateful. I go to Gelson's a block from where I live and I see the produce and I go, oh my God, there are places in this country they would drop dead if they saw 
that. They don't have a scrap, and we don't think anything of it. Nine kinds of apples, 20 kinds of grapes. We have to be grateful. We have so much. And it's harder today to be grateful because there's so much evil going on. But you really can't get buried in that. I have friends who are literally immobilized. You know, they are by what's going on, and that's the last thing we need to do. I believe there's more good people in the world than bad people. And I don't even believe there's bad people. They're just lost and broken. I believe that good well, people should rise up in the multitudes. Your friends can slowly rise up and change the world with your positive energy. And I know some people listening might be like, oh, that one. She sounds all hoity-toity, Oprah, Von Sant, whatever. No, I'm not saying that. And I'm not invalidating anyone who's going through a tough-ass time that's just really hard and F everyone. I totally get that. I've been there. But it is difficult. What you say, I totally agree with. But, you know, the Women's March, we all went out there. Look at that. No one gave a rat's ass. What did, did it do? Did no one give a rat's ass? I don't know. Did things change? I think people change on a fundamental, personal level. It might not have changed a bill right away or government. But in Buddhism, we say one human revolution in one person can transform the world. One person. I agree. Because now you come and change him and you change her and you smile at this one. It's a ripple effect. Then they might treat their partners better or their co-workers better. And slowly but surely, you spread goodness. So yes, these women did change each other. I did feel more empowered to go out and keep changing the audience, keep healing the audiences, keep making them understand that there's good in the world. I agree. Before you go, how about tell us your website? WeLoveSandra.com. And you know what? We do. Thank you. <laughs> gracias, Sandra. Thanks for being here today. And gracias, listeners. I'm Dan Guerrero. And I've been talking with singer, funny lady, high priestess, and badass, Sandra Valls. Thanks for tuning in to The Gaytino Report. Until next time, ten orgullo. Be proud. Okay, that's it for tonight. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer Steve Pride, Rainbow Minute producers Judd Proctor and Brian Burns, and our director of distribution Vash Bodhi. Find us online at imruradio.org and follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. If you're a web designer, social media expert, or just interested in LGBTQI community affairs and would like to volunteer with IMRU, email volunteer at imruradio.org. A little reminder, you can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. You can also listen to our podcast where we'll start presenting longer interviews and content too bodacious to broadcast. And if you want to see us, be sure to check out our promos on IMRU Radio Podcast on YouTube. Good Good night. night.